We go through those truths in part because they are truths we need to hear. Truths, thankfully, that we have written down for us. You can take them with you to dig in more because today we are thinking about assurance. We're continuing through the Gospel of John and today we are slowing down because what we have here in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40 are precious, powerful promises. And they are promises related to something we all desperately desire. Assurance. Assurance of our salvation. See, we pick up immediately after verse 36 where Jesus had called out the Jewish crowd because of their unbelief. That this crowd had seen Jesus' miracles. They had benefited from these miracles. And yet, they had not believed in Jesus. They refused to do so. And so an understandable concern would be, was anybody going to believe in Jesus? God the Father sent His Son in the flesh to make God known, and He's doing it, and people aren't believing. If they're not believing, then will Jesus' mission be a failure? See, these questions of assurance boil down to two big questions. How can we be sure that Christ will save people? And how can we be sure that we are saved? How can we be sure that Christ will save people? How can we be sure that we are saved? And so to help us answer those questions, to give us that assurance, we're going to look at John 6, verses 37 and 40. So open up your Bibles or look in your bulletins at the text and hear these words of God that are worthy of our treasuring them. John 6, 37 through 40. This is Jesus speaking throughout the entire passage. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we thank You for Your precious promises. We thank You that You give these promises to us, that they have been written down, that we can read them every day. We pray, O oh God, that You would work in our hearts to believe these promises to trust them deep in our souls, to have them readily accessible in our minds, and to not only be saved in Christ, but to be sure of our salvation in Christ. And so, Lord, I ask that You would please pour out Your grace upon me as I proclaim Your Word today. Help me to speak clearly and truly, O God. May the Spirit go forth in the power of Your Word and open hearts and minds to receive Your Word, O God. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to be changed and spirit work in us. 
comfort us by your word today and draw us to Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. The passage this morning in speaking about assurance wants us to know that we who believe in Jesus can be sure of our salvation because Christ himself has promised to save all who come to him. And we're going to look at the passage today and what Jesus says by his powerful promises related to the beginning of our salvation, how it starts, and the end of our salvation, how it is brought to completion. So two big promises, how it starts, how it is brought to completion, and then where the power for those promises comes from. So first, in looking at the powerful promises related to the beginning of our salvation, we ask ourselves, how is it that anyone receives eternal life in Jesus? How does that happen? Well, Jesus tells us that salvation starts with God. And Jesus tells us that by pointing to predestination. Now, hearing that big P word, some of you may have just gone and just turned them off. And it's like, cool, picnic's going to start in like 45 minutes. I'm good. I don't need to hear about predestination. That is too confusing to understand. It's too uncomfortable to think about or it's simply unfair. But I urge you, just turn them back on and listen to the powerful promise of predestination. How it is a very good thing for God's people. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus is speaking about people. That the Father gives people to Jesus for the purpose of saving them. In other places in Scripture, these people are called the elect or the chosen. That these are the people Jesus will save and he promises to do so. But if that's the case, our brain just starts pumping out questions. We have questions about predestination and about God giving these people to Jesus. And one question we may have is, well, when does this happen? When is this handoff from the Father to the Son? When did he give these people to Jesus? Well, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4, we read this, that the Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. That the Father chose people to give to Jesus before creation. And so this happened before the people were even born. Before anyone had done anything right or wrong, God the Father chose people simply out of his free grace and love to give to Jesus people so that they would be saved. So that's when this happens. But then we might ask, why? Why does it have to happen this way? Why does God choose some people instead of simply choosing no one and like, all right, well, let's see who believes. I've made the offer. Let's see who it is that will come to believe. Well, the answer is given a little later in John 6 and verse 44. It's Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now, that doesn't mean draws a picture of him. That means draws as in pulls them to Jesus. 
That apart from God's intervention, we are so corrupted by sin that we will not choose to believe in Jesus. We will not come to Jesus to be saved. God must initiate our salvation so we believe in Jesus. And so by choosing us for salvation and giving us to Jesus, God is taking the first step in starting our salvation. It starts at the very beginning with His election of people to salvation. And that's why it happens. But then we're like, okay, well, how? How does that happen? How does God draw us to Jesus? That I don't remember ever having this moment where I just got pulled to Jesus. So when did that happen? How does it happen? Well, earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, Jesus talked about how we must be born again through the Holy Spirit. And so even though God chooses us before creation to save us, that saving happens in time when the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. The Spirit changes us so we can come to Jesus and believe in Him. Note what Jesus says in verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. So predestination does not leave us with a fatalistic or a deterministic perspective on life. We don't have to go around doing whatever is we want because, well, we'll just get to the end of our lives and it'll just be, well, were you chosen? Were you not chosen? Doesn't matter how we live. No, no, no. Jesus tells us that those who have been given to him will come to him. And so even though we don't have a spiritual MRI machine to put people into and go, and there's some chosenness right there. Got it. I see it. You're there. We don't have that ability to see the election, but we can see the consequences of it. We see the consequences of it when people believe in Jesus, when they come to Jesus in faith. So even answering these questions about predestination, we still are ready with our whatabouts, our objections. But what about this? Because predestination makes us feel uncomfortable, especially as modern Americans who see ourselves as free to do right, to do wrong, to be masters of our own destinies. But predestination's here in the Bible. We can't remove it. You can ignore it, but don't do that. Like we try not to ignore what's in the Bible. And so we have to explain it in some way without explaining it away. And so we try to do all sorts of things. We think, okay, well, what if I take verse 37 and I just change the order? No one will notice, right? We'll just flip the second half of the sentence with the first half. And we'll say, all who come to me are those the Father has given me to save. And so the Father is essentially giving to Jesus people who come to him. Well, that would be like if your wife found a stray cat outside. And after she picked it up and loved it, you declared, I just gave that to you. I hope you enjoy your gift from me. That just the things that came to you, the Father was like, oh, I gave those to you, Jesus. I gave them to you. That's not how giving things works. We want to make it say other things. We want to make it say this, that God looks into the future and sees those who will believe and identifies them as, oh, those are the ones I'll give to Jesus. 
But what is the point of that other than making our freedom-loving hearts feel better that we have control over our lives? There's really no point other than making us feel like we get some credit for belief. Well, maybe if we just take that all in verse 37 and make it all people, that all the people in the world, in the history of the world, have been given to Jesus by the Father. Well, not everyone comes to believe in Jesus. If the Father has literally given all people in the world to Jesus so He would save them, then Jesus has failed. He has done a terrible job of saving people. And that can't be true. Because Jesus says in verse 38, He does what the Father gives Him to do. He is always successful in keeping His promises. And so this passage must teach predestination in some way. But far from being a problem, we need to see this as a wonderful thing. Because God predestining us to salvation means that our salvation is in Jesus' hands. That the Father, out of His love, has essentially picked us up and given us to Jesus and said, I want you to save this one. I'm entrusting this soul to you. This person I love. Save them. That we are not responsible for saving our souls. Jesus is. We are responsible to respond to the gospel message by coming to Him because all who are given to Him surely will come. And so if you're hearing all of this and you're concerned whether or not you have been chosen for salvation, then I want to politely say that you are asking the wrong question. Because we don't have that spiritual MRI machine. I am not a doctor. Okay? I don't have that kind of machine. The question we should ask ourselves is, have I come to Jesus? Have I looked on Jesus and believed in Him for salvation? If you have, then take comfort because the Father has given you to Jesus. Because all who the Father gives Him will come to Him. Take comfort that the Spirit has regenerated your heart and run to Jesus for salvation. Take comfort in this promise. Maybe it's not you you're worried about. Maybe you feel pretty good about yourself. You have that sense, yes, I love Jesus. I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about this person I love. Or this person I want to talk to at work or at school. I'm worried they're not chosen. Well, let me say again, I think you're asking the wrong question. Since we don't know who the chosen people will be, we continue to preach the gospel to all people. And we do so with amazing confidence because we know some people will believe. That some people will come to Jesus because God has chosen people to save and has given them to Jesus and they will come to Him. So as you share the gospel with friends, with family, with co-workers, take comfort from the truth that it is the Father who draws people to Jesus by the Spirit so that they will believe. 
so that His promise will be fulfilled. It is not all on you and your arguments and persuasiveness and winsomeness. The Father draws people to Jesus. And so we take great comfort in that powerful promise about how salvation begins. But Jesus doesn't just want us to know that He starts salvation. He wants us to know He finishes it. He completes it. He does not leave unfinished works. And so the second powerful promise in this passage is about perseverance. We hear it in the second half of verse 37 where Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The very fact that this promise is in the Bible implies we are worried that Jesus is going to cast us out. One pastor writes that fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. That we retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us. We're not going to raise our hands. We are Presbyterians after all. Um, but I'm going to imagine that for most of you, there has been a time in your life where you were worried or are worried that Jesus had grown tired of you. That because of something you had done or something going on in your life, that you were worried Jesus was done with you. Hear this promise. I will never cast them out. This implies that Jesus is willing to save whoever comes to him. That's what he says. Whoever comes to me. He is always willing and ready to save sinners. Isn't that who he came to save? He came to save sinners. And so why should he turn away from us when we sin? Those are the very people he came to save. And so this never assures us that there is no possible reason he would ever cast us out. That no sin is too great. That no failure to do good is such a reason that he would say, I'm sorry, we got to let you go. You're not part of the team anymore. Jesus promises us we will never be discarded. But he tells us it's not just that he's willing to save, he is also powerful to save. That's what's implied in verse 39 where he takes the promise and he strengthens it. He says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. There's a difference between casting out and losing. There's a difference there that you cast something out willingly because you have rejected it. But you can lose something you love by your own error or negligence. And Jesus assures us neither of those things will happen to us. He will lose nothing of all his father has given to him. As Judy shared with the kids in the children's message, we should think of Jesus in this life as holding our hands tightly, walking through us, holding our hands until the last day. And we're holding on tight, too, by our faith. But what matters far more is how tightly he is holding on to us. We are not saved by the strength of our grip of our faith but the strength of the one we have faith in. The strength of the one we entrust our hand to. We are called to persevere in our faith, but He is the one who preserves us 
and promises to raise us up on the last day. Two times in these verses, Jesus mentions this raising up on the last day. He says, this is the will of my Father who sent me. That my Father didn't send me just to start salvation. He sent me to see it through until the very last day. That means if Jesus fails to bring any one of His people to that last day, He has failed in doing His Father's will. That means that our greatest hope to make it to the end faithfully is the fact that Jesus is the one getting us there. That He is obeying the Father in bringing us to that very last day. Assuring us, oh no, no, I'm finishing what the Father has given me to do. And it is not that day yet and I'm still doing it. And so as we hear this promise of perseverance, of enduring to the end, we are probably happy, and yet there's whatabouts. There's objections. We're thinking in our heads, this sounds too good to be true. Predestination was not like too too good to be true. That sounded a little iffy. But this sounds almost a little too good to be true. And so we, we object. And we're like, Pastor, what about Judas? One of the twelve disciples, Judas Iscariot, wasn't he lost? Wasn't he cast out? Doesn't Judas invalidate this promise? Well, he does not invalidate this promise, for Judas's betrayal was both foretold and planned by Jesus. John mentions this later in chapter 17, that This happened, the betrayal of Judas, in order to fulfill the Scriptures, that he was uniquely chosen for that purpose. He is a special case. He does not invalidate the promise that we all fall in this category, not in the special case category. But we still think, no, okay, well, all right, you answered Judas, but what about... What about all the other people that I know or throughout history who professed faith in Jesus at one time and then fell away from the faith, never to return? That we may personally know of people who used to worship with us here or elsewhere and said they believed in Jesus, but instead of going elsewhere to worship, they are now either denying Jesus or simply disinterested in Jesus. What about them? Did Jesus lose them? Did he cast them out because they had done something wrong or he didn't like them anymore? Our New Testament reading tries to answer this question. In 1 John 2, the same author of this gospel writes that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. These people who seem to fall away from the faith are said to have never truly come to Jesus. They may have come to the church, being interested in the loving fellowship of believers. They may have come to a set of moral teaching, trying to live their lives on the straight and narrow in a way that others would respect. But they never came to Jesus. Hear verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
And so we must go to Jesus trusting in the person whose promises are written on these pages. For all who come to Him will never be cast out. And our objections, they, we've got one last one, and it's just, it's in there deep, and we don't even want to say it. We've, we've been thinking about Judas, we've been thinking about all these other people, and then we start thinking about us. What about me? Has Jesus cast me out? Because I feel far from Him. I feel like He's lost me because I'm suffering so much. I lack any sense of peace in my soul. And I've sinned in just stupid ways. I have hurt others. I have strayed far from God. Have I? Have I been cast out? Because it surely feels like He's given up on me. And the question to ask of yourself is, have you come to Jesus? If so, I want you to hear that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That if you have come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. See, as we look at these promises packed into these four verses, I want you to see the power of these promises. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given to me. These promises are only as good as the one making them. And Jesus Himself is making these promises to you. That the Son of God, who is perfectly righteous and yet merciful towards sinners, makes and keeps all of these promises. And thank God, because no one else could. Compare what Jesus says in this verse to Moses in our Old Testament reading. Moses, who was described as a servant of the Lord, as a great leader, as a mediator between God and His people, who was revered by the Jews in Jesus' day, and yet by year two, I'm out. I've had it. These people are awful. They're terrible. They won't stop whining. They're a bunch of sinners. They won't do anything right. I can't do it, God. He was frustrated with them. I can't take it. Not only can't I do it, I don't want to do it. Kill me, he says. He's exasperated. He wants to cast his people out. Jesus says that will never happen with him. Never happen with him. That whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast them out. He will not lose a single one of those who come to him in faith. Jesus never thinks, Ugh, Father, these people? Like these are the ones you want me to save? No. No, he came to save sinners. Sinners like us. To save us from our slavery to sin, to shed his own blood for us. Jesus never thinks to himself, oh, they're so miserable. They just won't stop sinning. They don't love me that much. Their faith is like super weak. No. He doesn't think that. He promises that everyone who looks on him and believes in him will have eternal life. And he will raise them up on the last day. And so Christian, your assurance can be found in the one who makes the promises. In the one who saves you. 
Our problem is we try to take our assurance from other places. We ground our assurance for salvation in our decision to believe in Jesus. Do not ground your assurance in the fact that I decided to believe in Jesus on this and this this day or at this and this time. No. Ground your assurance on the fact that the Father has predestined you for salvation and has given you to Jesus who promises to save you. You don't need to ground your assurance on your ability to persevere to the end because you have a greater assurance in Jesus who is holding on to you and will never cast you out and will never lose you and will raise you up in glory on that last day. Your assurance is not because you think you can make it to the end, but that he will get you there. You do not need to ground your assurance in the strength of your faith because you have greater assurance in that tender compassionate heart of Jesus Christ. So look to Him. Go to Him again and again every day and take comfort from His powerful promises knowing the unfailing love of the One who has made these promises to you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You know our weakness, our fears, our anxieties. That we won't be saved. That something's going to happen. That we're going to mess it up. That something's going to go wrong. And so God, I pray that these promises would be medicine to our souls. That they would comfort us in our fears. That in those darkest moments of feeling far from You, that they would be like Your presence through the Spirit, strengthening us to know Your heart for us. God, may we not forget that Jesus didn't simply follow Your directions, but He delighted to save us. And He delights to do so even today. And so help us go to Jesus our Savior in Jesus' name. Amen.